Hey everyone, this is Klaatu. You're listening to episode 11 of season 13 for 2019.069. Look, the long and short of it is we've got a lot to cover this episode. We've got listener feedback and we've got util Linux package from the Slackware install disk. You, you may not have util Linux, the, the, the package name util Linux on your system. I guarantee you, you have the applications that it contains. So you're going to want to hear this. But before that, we have listener feedback, and quite a lot of it, so I'm going to try to get through as much as I can, which means I'm going to really try to keep sort of the commentary to a minimum. So, here's what Vulcan Writer says about uh, the licensing thing. And he says, first of all, this is going to be long, so you don't have to read it on the show. Well, I'm going to read it on the show because it shows a good counterpoint, I think, to, to kind of my default settings which generally tend to be GPL is better. So this is a, a counterpoint to that. This is Vulcan Writer's take on, on that sentiment. I have listened with interest, he says, to your discussion of licenses. I find myself set more toward the BSD MIT Apache license than the GPL. As you said, the GPL is more restrictive than the BSD license. I am not a lawyer, but having said that, it seems to me, at least in my limited experience, that the GPL tends to take aim at small developers as well as large companies. I think by... This is Klaatu again. I think by take aim, he's, I believe his implication is that it, it, it limits large companies, yes, but it also limits small developers, with limits being a negative thing. And then he continues and says, I feel that the GPL tends to take freedom away from developers and gives it to the user. Maybe that is just the way Stallman interprets the GPL. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure what he's saying there. He says, in, in his opinions, users should only use free software. So I'm not really sure. I'm, I, I'm not following that thought necessarily. But the part that he says, so I feel that the GPL tends to take freedom away from developers and gives it to the users. And I, I, I'd probably... I probably would agree with that, but then I, I do also feel like possibly part of the, part of the idea here may be possibly what we're picking up on here, if we're looking at the FSF sort of objectively from afar, we may be picking up on the idea, and this might just be me making this up too, but I kind of feel like the this false dichotomy between there are developers and there are users, and I say false dichotomy, but there's not really, because we, we can all use empirical evidence to show that there are people who develop and there are people who are just users, and yet, and yet, and this is kind of what I've been saying maybe all this season, if I recall correctly, or maybe it was last season, I don't know. Things like Excel, Microsoft Excel, that, that turns users into programmers. I mean, I've seen Excel spreadsheets that are basically GUI applications. We've talked about this before on this show. So, there, I, I, I think that the Unix ideal, like in a perfect world where we didn't have to worry about anything else but just kind of computer science, I think in the perfect world there would be no developer and user split. We would all be the same people. There might be different levels, but we would all feel comfortable with computers and say, yes, I am computerist. And that would mean that when you have a problem, you know how to, you know how to hook commands together, pipe them into, into a row, and, and have the output of one go into the input of the other and, and actually give you useful data and that kind of thing. So it's, it's that I don't think that the GPL necessarily takes freedom away from developers and gives it to the users, because I don't believe that users and developers are meant to be two separate concerns. And certainly as a user-slash-developer myself, um, I, I do appreciate the guarantees that the GPL provides me. I, I, I truly, truly do. That said, however, to be fair, 
I also appreciate it when I see an MIT or an Apache license or a BSD license or a Zlib li license where you look at it and you think, cool, I'll just take that and use it. And there's no thought about whether you're allowed to use it or whether it's compatible. You just you just know it is because you know that, that the clause basically amounts to remember to give me credit, you know, and that's it. So I think there may be space for, for all of these licenses and... and I don't know that even even the FSF I don't know would say that that that's w would disagree with that because if you look on the FSF site and look at their definition of open source licenses and so on or free free software licenses and so on then you'll see that that they don't always say that, that they do sort of steer you away from certain licenses sometimes and there even is actually a GNU all permissive license which reads a lot like an MIT or a Zlib or even a BSD two or three I mean I'd have to compare line by line but I mean it's it's essentially the same thing which says do whatever you want with it okay so um, below is a letter I sent to the Mintcast in 2013. I think this entire ZFS fiasco with the kernel devs are are akin to the open DWG issue, only more so. And then, yeah, I'm gonna have to admit that that does get pretty long, so let's see if we can, um, let's see if we can boil this down a little bit. So he says, this is, again, a copy of a letter that he sent, or an email he sent to someone else. So, while I agree in principle that software should be free, and I agree that proprietary software can be used for monitoring by businesses and governments, I'm also a pragmatist. If I can't accomplish a goal, then what's the point? For example, I use the NVIDIA proprietary driver because I like my eye candy, and the Nuvo driver just isn't there yet. That is part of why I have a huge problem with uh, Stallman and the FSF. Whether, given all the ills in the world, whether you're using NVIDIA or Nuvo um, is pretty, is not really all that important. So unfortunately, with the contributions of IBM, DEC, and yes, to an extent, Microsoft computers would not be so ubiquitous. We would be running in batch jobs on mainframes instead of having two cell phones in my pocket and two laptops on my desk. Just recently, I heard about the GNU Libre DWG project having shed most of its developers. Basically, projects like LibreCAD, FreeCAD, and Blender wanted to include support for DWG files, the AutoCAD format. LibreCAD and FreeCAD are both GPL version 2, while Libre DWG is GPL version 3. Stallman patently refuses to change the license to allow these projects to use the code, so he is splintering the free software movement because it's not free enough. Some issues that Vulcan Rider has there with, with the FSF installment, I guess. But the point here that I, I kind of focus on personally, because it kind of is the thing that I'm interested in uh, out of this collection is unfortunately without the contributions of IBM Digital Equipment Corporation and Microsoft computers would not be so ubiquitous. And I think that's a great conversation point and I'm I'm jotting it down for the future. Let's just put it that way because I have thoughts about that and I have heard other people's thoughts about it that kind of surprised me. And yeah, I guess I'll just I'll leave it there. I'll I'll leave it at that because that's an interesting point. Fodder for a, a future episode. So, thank you very much, uh, Vulcan Writer, for the counterpoint. I feel like that's a counterpoint. It's, it's not exactly a counterpoint. Some of it's a counterpoint, some of it's not. And on, I, either way, it's a, certainly a different perspective than what I usually provide here. So then Freya emailed me. Apparently there's an archive wrapper A-tool. That's A-T-O-O-L. For those who often use different archive formats and who can't remember the flags. Example, A-unpack, archive-tar.gz, archive.zip.xz, A-L-S for list archive.zip apac archive.zip .bz2 file 1 file 2 or a tool x or a2 a tool l so in other words this 
tool, this A tool, A T O O L, is one of those multi format applications that will happily archive for you in a zip format, in a tar format, in this or that. It's great to know about. I've never used it and I probably won't use it. There was another one out there and I think it's called, um, I want to say it's called like PAX or Zoo or something like that. It's one of those two, and I, I reckon we'll probably find out as we go through the Slackware, the Slackware packages, because it's, I'm pretty sure it's included by default. But even, honestly, 7-Zip, like 7-Zip, if you look at the, at the P7-Zip manual, or whatever it is, 7-Z, yeah, um, so man, 7-Z, it says it's a f file archiver with highest compression ratio, program supports um, 7-Z, that implements Lisma. Zip, CAB, ARG, GZIP, BZIP, TAR, CPIO, RPM, DEB. So basically it just, and I guess technically, obviously, 7Z, right? I mean, the, the actual format 7Z. Um, and, and I think somewhere in there, I think, is yeah, ZIP was the one of the first ones. So it actually handles a lot of them, too. Now, I don't use it for that, and I, maybe I should sometime just decide, okay, I'm going to use one tool for all my archiving stuff and just see how that goes. That might be an interesting experiment, but um, it's definitely, yeah, it's, with all these archive formats, I, I do not see a downside to having some a, a wrapper around them, because there are a lot to remember, and it is a lot to remember, all of those different switches, and and, okay, which order does this go in, and just learning one tool would be a lot, lot simpler. So I'm absolutely all about that. So thanks for the tip about a tool. Like I say, I probably won't use it anytime soon because I do have at least at least one, if not three, other tools that are kind of similar in spirit, wrapping themselves around other archive format. And then I got an email from Carl. Carl says, and he's emailed before, he was talking about, um, oh, I don't know, just trust me, he, he emailed me before, I, I have it further down the screen, and I don't want to go down there and waste time, so, here we go, he says, thanks for the comments on the Julian date, oh, that's what he emailed me about, remember, Julian date and Lua and Fossil, so then he says, I feel like I should take you up on the advice and try an open source DAW instead of using Reaper, uh, I went to slackermedia.info to check out the example workflows, and in the process noticed that the handbook link shows Slacker Media book when you hover over it, but tries to take you somewhere else when clicked, which gives you an unable to connect page. So yeah, this is true. It's been fixed now. I, I run a site called Slacker Media, in case you don't know, dear listener. And Slacker Media is basically a tutorial site. It's about how to start with a Slackware install. You install Slackware onto your computer, and then you end up, after you, if you follow the the, the sort of the path of Slacker Media, then you end up with a multimedia production studio, pretty much. It's it's pretty complete, to be honest. I mean, it doesn't cover all use cases, because I can't possibly know all use cases, and I don't have necessarily all the equipment to do all use cases, but it's something that I, that I, it covers a lot of ground. So, uh, the handbook, the Slackware dot, or slackermedia.info slash handbook is the, the main source of all the information, and it is... I've moved it onto the internet. I mean, it used to be a printed book. Now I, I have it just on the internet because it's better, I think, as a living document or an easily updatable document, if not living. And uh, and so that's there, and it's free, and you're welcome to go check it out and l learn all about Linux audio and video stuff and, and really anything you could ever want, hopefully, about... Um, about doing multimedia cre content creation on, on Linux. So the problem is, or the thing about that site is that I opened it, you know, I started that site a long time ago. And funny story, uh, back then when I started it, GoDaddy was kind of the hot new thing. 
on on the internet scene. Like they were they were shaking things up, believe it or not. And one of their deals was that if you bought a domain name through them, then you would get free hosting for life. And so Slacker Media has free hosting for life through GoDaddy based on this deal. And actually, a lot of other sites did too for a while, but I didn't realize that those sites were dependent on like this one domain name that I'd purchased. And so, and I and I thought, well, I don't really need that domain name anymore. Not realizing that that was the domain name that 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 enabled like all these other, you know, this free account. So I let that I let that go and lost the uh, the hosting. So that was too bad. But anyway, completely unrelated to all of that, GoDaddy recently decided to, I don't know, migrate my, my free account to some other place, probably, you know, their seventh tier server or something. And in so doing, they messed up a bunch of things. And they didn't even, I don't even remember getting an email warning about it. They just, they sent me an email saying, okay, we've moved all your stuff. And I thought, you did what now? Um, so that messed up a couple of links on Slacker Media. So if you happen to go to Slacker Media and you happen to find stuff that's missing or broken links or whatever, yeah, shoot me an email. I'm happy to, to hear about it. It's very helpful. Okay, so a guy named Brian... Uh, emailed me, and he says, I've been enjoying your show immensely. Don't stop going through the Slackware package list. It's informative. He says, I'm going to quote him, it's informative in a way that no Linux podcast comes close to. So um, let's not spread that around, because other podcasts might try to steal the idea and outdo me, but um, but apparently that's, that's the hook here, is that I'm going through every single Slackware package. And um, yeah, I mean, you have to admit, it is useful, right? I mean, how many of us know what we install. You know, we throw Ubuntu or Fedora or Slackware or whatever on our computer, and it's blissfully simple at this point. We don't have to think about it. That's exactly where we wanted to be. So it's a great place to be, but but the, the, the side effect is that a lot of us don't even realize what's installed on our computer. And the, a lot of those things are installed for that one guy who's, who's been using Linux since 1990. Eight, you know, which makes me really jealous, but he's been doing it. And so he wants that one little weird application that no one else uses. And, and, and hey, it's there. I mean, it's like, you know, 384 kilobytes. Who cares? Throw it on the disk. He has it now, and we're, and, but, but we don't even know it exists because we, we missed that, that boat. Uh, so anyway, he says some stuff about, um, oh yeah, so, so this guy, Brian, he, he is the guy who took me up on the promo code for webhosting.coop. Remember I told you a couple episodes ago that I have promo codes for webhosting.coop, my generous sponsor, my, my generous current sponsor, they, they host the website, and right now they're not charging me for it. And, and they gave me a bunch of coupon codes, and I said, hey, shoot me an email if you want a coupon code for webhosting.coop. Brian took me up on it, got a year for free. Now, don't you feel silly for not uh, emailing me yourself. But that's okay, I still have 50% ones off. So if you, if you want to get in on webhosting.coop, send me an email, I will give you, I will give you a code, and you can, um, you can give it to webhosting.coop when you're signing up, for a web hosting account, and they will take 50% off your first year. So that's that's a pretty good deal uh, if you're looking for web. Alternately, you can email Brian and ask him what the free code is. It won't work, but you can probably figure out the half-rate code from that if you're if you're super clever. Okay, so then uh, Josh Cox wrote me, and he, he of course he's the guy behind Web Hosting Co-op, so 
Uh, always good to hear from him, I guess. I mean, I have to say that now, right? Because he's my, my sponsor. So, uh, he says, thanks for, um, uh, oh yeah, he says, thanks for the exposure, uh, for Cubash, which I was talking about the other, a couple episodes ago, and I wasn't quite clear on what Cubash was. I'm getting from, from this email that Cubash is, um, Josh's project, which is pretty amazing because it looked absolutely astounding. So he says, Cubash was largely conceived to spin up Kubernetes, Kubernetes clusters. However, I have found that it, what it provides that seems to be lacking out there is an easy way to build VM images using Packer and spin them up easily with KVM or QEMU uh, and QEMU. Cubash build and then Cubash provision, respectively. In fact, I already find myself abusing my own software to just build VMs that do not run Kubernetes just because Cubash does it very efficiently by rebasing images off the master packer build. Now that sounds amazing. And if you don't know, you don't know what he's talking about here, um, just just mess around with with QEMU sometime and take snapshots. It's a it's a powerful powerful thing. It really is. It's really really cool. It will it will save you heaps of times. As a I maintain a couple of Slack builds, right? So when I'm when I build a Slack build, I need to build it on a clean Slackware system. So I often do that in a QEMU a QEMU uh, virtual machine. But once you've built it on a you know quote unquote clean software install, then that Slackware install is no longer clean. The cool thing about QEMU is that it lets you do these these images these snapshots so that you can make this image file based on your QCOW2 image and then just ditch the image when you're done. The the .img file that that snapshot you can just ditch it you can throw it away when you're finished with it. and so you can keep kind of like bouncing off of this one clean install that you made one time back in 2012. And you don't, or maybe not 2012, maybe like 2014 or something. I don't know. But yeah, you you've got this thing, and you can just keep bouncing images off of it without actually polluting your master image. And so to be able to do that rapidly and repetitively and programmatically is huge. This has the advantage, he says, of not taking up more storage space for the same OS packages, etc., and it is more efficient to the host as all that is loaded into RAM only once and shared by the VMs using that base image. So if you want to go see this for yourself, uh, I mean, certainly you can go to qbash.org or whatever it was, K-U-B-A-S-H, I think, .org. Uh, but you can also go to github.com slash joshuacox slash qbash. So that's J-O-S-H-U-A-C-O-X slash K-U-B-A-S. Qbash as in Kubernetes rather than the letter Q. So that's really, really neat. Um, I, you know, I, I guess I need an excuse to, to mess around with that. I really do. Um, maybe, maybe post Slackware package review, we'll, we'll go to Qbash in what that, that'll be, t only takes like probably eight more years. So, so then he says on co-op things, we are so, cause he's doing again, webhosting.coop. So he says on co-op things, we are investigating a few options on town hall, possibly going back to open public but it's very slow and inefficient and never was updated to Drupal 8. So we could just spin up a bare-bones Drupal 8 image and put some sort of polling in there, or we could move on to something more modern. So if any of you dear listeners have insight into, I guess I guess you would call it maybe, I don't know what you would call it, groupware or or polling software, I mean, things that would, would enable a group of people to coordinate and collaborate and, I guess, have a say in issues that need to be decided upon, then let me know or let Josh Cox know. 
and uh, it, you know any insight into that could be really really useful for webhosting.coop and also of course I love to hear about new software anyway so if you if you know of something let me know and I was trying to rack my brain on the subject myself and I, I really don't actually know I've never tried to coordinate a group of people in that in that exact way and that's a really it's a really interesting puzzle like how do you get how do you get input from from a lot of people outside of okay well here's a a forum here's a here's a poll in a forum or something or here's a forum just make a comment and then we'll aggregate it and try to make some sense of all this data which i mean that does work people do it all the time is it the most efficient probably not so if you know of anything let me know because um I, I would be quite, quite interested in hearing about it, and I, I know Josh would as well. Okay, one more email called Random Tidbits from uh, Pierre says, uh, He listens to a number of Linux podcasts, and GWO grows on me the more I listen. I like this compliment. This is Platu again. I like this compliment because, you know, I think a couple of weeks ago, or maybe a week ago, we had someone say that, this was their favorite show. And, and here's this guy saying, um, it grows on me. It's not bad. <laughs> it's getting there. I like that. I, I like the, the sense of reservedness that Pierre shows here. That's, that's good. I like that. He's holding back, and he's examining and observing. Darn it, I admire that. I mean, no, no more or no less than someone who says this is their favorite show. I'm just saying that this is, this is good. This is a good variety of listeners. Okay, so he says... Um, so I've gone back a few years, listened to a couple of shows, um, and he wants to remind listeners uh, that they can always use the Wayback Machine to view code snippets which you've read. And that's interesting because I actually didn't think that I even did show notes that well. So to hear that apparently there are show notes in my past is, is actually quite encouraging to me. Um, I did upload some of the old show notes the other weekend that, that were missing. But yeah, I, I, I didn't really feel like I did a good job of show notes at all but that's that's fine i do feel like i'm getting better at it now the problem of course is that the time it takes to sit down and speak into a microphone and then compress it and adjust it and post it after i've spent that time in on the show to spend another that much amount of time sort of going back over what i just had said and and writing it all down in a sensible way i feel i feel is well it means really doubling up on the effort in a in a weird way now you might think well you should just write it down first and then sort of read what you wrote when you are are doing the podcast maybe that would go faster maybe it would maybe it wouldn't i don't know but i think in practice i actually do and this again isn't necessarily the best way i ramble on about stuff on the show and then in at some point in the the future or sometimes the past I have, I have, I will sit down and write out a tutorial on something and post it somewhere. It's just not usually on GNU World Order, the website, because it's not really structured for that. The GNU World Order, the website, is basically a, an HTML front end for the feeds. I mean, that's kind of how I see it. Again, I'm not 100% sure that any of this is really the best way to do it, and it may change at some point, especially since I have mixed signals.ml out there now. I might try to start, start to migrate stuff over to that, which has a more blog-like structure, and that would be better for random blog posts about technology I could post on there. And then there would be show notes that are maybe not a complete transcription of what I said on the show, but that, that are relevant to 
to what I say on the show. We'll see. And D. Pierre says that I don't, um, he's got a little critique here, and he says, I don't think you need to read off long snippets of code. Short snippets are fine, but long ones just get, make it confusing. Then again, I could be wrong, and maybe it helps for listeners who are visually impaired. I don't know. So, again, he makes a great point here, honestly. Um, the long lines of code that I read sometimes, yeah, admittedly, unless you're a very fast typist and you happen to be sitting at a computer right when I'm reading them out, maybe it isn't super useful. Um, at the same time, I think a lot of people, I mean, I listen to Linux podcasts for, because I want to hear geek talk, right? I mean, that's, like, deep geeks talk geek to me. You want to hear that. You want to hear that in your ears. You want to hear about the computer stuff. And so I think sometimes hearing commands rattled off in, in, as you are listening, I, I actually think it's kind of comforting in a weird way, if you're here for the geek content. Um, that said, I don't think it works for everyone, and I'm aware of that, but whether I'm going to change that or not is completely different, so we'll, I guess we'll, we'll just kind of see how, we'll see how that goes. Uh, and then Pierre asks about backups, and I, I've talked about backups before in previous episodes. I've talked about attach up my custom Python script that installs a UDEV script, for a drive that you plug into your computer and then that drive gets backed up to your hard drive rather than backing up your hard drive to some other place. So that that I've talked about. The other the other side of all of that is that I I back up long-term data like podcasts, the final the final copies of an episode I back up to a just a USB hard drive uh, and then I have a location offsite that I I can rsync it to uh, you know once a week or so and that's hosted by by um, someone else, and they actually have, we, we both, we each have a Raspberry Pi. Uh, actually, not a Pi right now, I'm running it on a, an old desktop behind the sofa, but anyway, um, we, we both have a, a, a server, a home server, and we use OpenVPN and rsync to send our mutual backups to one another's place and, and thereby have offsite. Uh, backups uh, of of the big the big storage, and I, I try to really minimize the stuff that I keep. Honestly, I'm not uh, I'm I don't aim to be my own data center. I do not aim to be an archivist or a historian. I really do try to reduce the amount of storage that I have because I mean I do that in real life. I don't have much stuff in real life, and I I try to mimic that in my computing life. I I just I can't be bothered with with carrying stuff around. I don't want to leverage the cloud, which is probably the obvious answer these days. I, I don't want to put my stuff onto someone else's computer um, that I, certainly someone that I don't even know, that that does not interest me. So, yeah, it's it's mostly just a bunch of USB drives with an occasional off-site R-Sync. That's, that's my backup plan. Okay, that's everything. That's all the listener feedback. I can't believe I got through it all. It's because I didn't really comment. Hopefully that didn't sound terse, all of my answers. Um, I appreciate all the emails. I just wanted to get through them all so that I don't fall too far behind in getting back to people because sometimes not hearing back for, you know, a couple of weeks feels just almost the same as just being totally ignored. So, yeah, pardon the, the, um, the sort of the, the terseness of the responses. Um, but I, I did, I think I emailed everyone back that I mentioned um, in, in via text as well. You know, I, I actually wrote an email, so hopefully that, that sort of makes up for the, the, the mad rush through emails in, in the, at the front of the show. And, and even mad rushing, I think we're probably about 20 or 30 minutes into this show, so it's definitely time for a cup of coffee. Let's go get one, and then we'll come back to cover all of the different apl- applications in Util Linux. <laughs> Thank you.
back. I hope you've had a, I hope you have a cup of coffee in front of you. This is an important package that we're covering today. It's util Linux, that's U-T-I-L-Linux. It may, it might not be called util Linux on your, on your distribution. They might have split it out into other applicate, into smaller packages. They might have called it something else. I don't know. Haven't really tracked it on other distributions, but on Slackware, it's called util-Linux. It is, uh, one of the, it's, it's a package available straight from the kernel archives. It, it comes straight from kernel.org, the home of Linux, the actual Linux part of Linux. And it's got a bunch of really sort of important low-level applications to it that we probably, again, sort of all take for, take for granted. So the first one, just going through them alphabetically as they are listed in slash var slash log slash packages slash util-linux dash, call it asterisk. And uh, the first one is dmessage, or d-m-e-s-g, which is print or control the kernel ring buffer. Specifically, d-m-e-s-g apparently stands for, according to Wikipedia, display message or driver message. And the reason for that is because dmessage shows the, the kernel ring buffer, which it's messages from the kernel, which often is about drivers or about device detection, that sort of thing. And so it is one of those tools that I think you get referred to a lot as kind of a troubleshooting uh, method. You get you get told to run dmessage pipe tail to, to find out about a device that you've plugged in or something like that. So it's it's something that we get referred to every now and again. But if you've ever if you've ever looked at it, you know that it has quite a lot of quite a lot of data in it and and very. Very specifically, it's got so much data that sometimes it's overwhelming and or not very useful. So this is, this is, maybe if you, if you haven't looked at dmessage lately, try typing it in. You, you'll see what I mean. It's, it's, it's just a bunch of, it's just a bunch of messages from your kernel with a lot of data that, that kind of, it just starts to look basically all the same after a while. And it's got these numbers on the on the left side that don't really seem to match up to anything that we recognize. We're assuming it's a timestamp, but how can we know? 32.693418, WLAN0 associated. What does this mean? I don't even know. What, when was that? Was that yesterday? Was it today? Was it just now? Who knows? So now if you go to, D, to, to man D message, you'll see that there are actually a lot of options here that, once again, you may never have even thought of. And this, I think this is a, this is one of those great candidates for one of your, um, your default dash, dot bash RC aliases. This is one of them. And, and you'll see why. So watch this. So we'll do a D message and then, uh, we'll do a dash dash color equals always, and then we'll do a dash dash C time, that is the letter C and then time, and then we could do, well maybe we'll just, well we could, now let's keep it at that, so that's dash dash color equals always and then dash dash C time, and then we'll hit return, and suddenly you see that the, the D message has color to it. it, it's no longer just a wall of green text or white text or whatever your terminal is set to, it, it now has different colors assigned to the different kinds of messages. Well, that's exciting. And in addition to that, the left-hand column no longer shows some some timestamp relative to whatever event it is a delta of, but uh, instead shows an actual date, Sunday, uh, 2019.69.1534, or whatever it might say. So there you go. That's that's already a huge improvement. Now, there are there are still more tricks that you can do. Um, but that probably, in terms of aliasing dmessage so that you 
so that you always get that. That would probably be something to do right off the bat. Now you can kind of mimic that, I think, w with just a quick a quick shorthand, but it, it doesn't give you the fancy uh, timestamp, although maybe maybe the shorthand plus that. Yeah, okay, that works. So you can do dmessage uh, dash dash human, which implies, uh, or which brings in the color, uh, rel time, and I think no pager, so it just spits it out and you just you end up seeing just the tail of it. I don't really find that that useful, but but it it does exist. Um, I, I for me the dash dash color equals always uh, or just dash dash color really is all you need, and then dash dash c time is is pretty useful uh, as, as a default. And then if you want to do a d message pipe tail just to see that last bit, then you okay. So there's there's the the first tip right there is just how to how to make that a little bit more readable but there's also this level list which is kind of cool so restrict output to the given comma separated list of levels so for example dash dash level equals err comma warn and you can get a, su a supported list of levels with dash dash help output so if we do d message dash dash help then we see the supported log level priorities which is emerge as in emergency the system is unusable alert crit er warn notice info and debug so you can limit what you're seeing in in your your output by just limiting it to certain things so if you just want to see the errors then you can do a, a, a d message dash dash c time space dash dash level equals err and hit return and ideally, there would be no errors, right? You wouldn't see anything. But of course, uh, of course, I would. I would love to be able to say that my system has no errors in its kernel ring buffer, but sadly, no. There are, and I know what this error is related to. Actually, um, sort of. There's this weird problem that I have with one of my spare disks uh, in my tower, and I think it has something. Well, honestly, uh, I just haven't sat down and actually hunt hunted it down. But there you go. That's that's how to read the message a little bit easier than staring at a big wall of of text. You can also do things like follow. So if you need to maybe monitor the output of dmessage, you can do dash dash follow and that opens it up into a uh, into a you know dumps the output up to up to the current point and then if you do something that 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 creates a new kernel message, it will appear on your uh, on your screen. So you're you're basically doing a tail dash f, but it's it's all within the application this way. There's a lot more tricks uh, that you can you can leverage depending on what you're looking for in dmessage. So check out man dmessage if if it's if it's actually a tool that you that you find yourself using ever. It's it's worth looking at the man page. I think that's one of those messages that for the, the longest time I never looked at the man page because you're always told when exactly to use it. You know something failed. Check dmessage pipe tail or so and so you do that and then you get the d message output you look for the thing that you're you know you're supposed to look for and then go about your so there's d message uh let's do a find 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 mount is what it's called so find mnt find mnt lists all mounted file systems uh, or it will search for a file system as the find part implied the find mount com uh, command is able to search in slash etsy slash fs tab Etsy mtab or proc self mount info. If device or mount point is not given, all file systems are shown. So if we do a find mnt, then we get a nice output in sort of a tree-like format, if you'll recall. Previous episode, we were talking about the tree command, and this kind of mimics that in a way, showing us everything that is that is uh, mounted. And this is interesting because, I mean, we talked about udisks last time, and we'll talk about lsblk, uh, this time, and uh, we talked about it last time a little bit, and, and all of that is kind of from 
from the perspective of, okay, well, what have you got attached to your computer right now? This is obviously from sort of a related but, but a different angle, which is, okay, well, what is actually mounted on computer, right? And that's kind of cool because, I mean, it, it's super useful because a lot of times you'll, you'll want to know, well, which partition, which one of these partitions is my home directory anyway? Well, you can find that out with find mount. You just type in find mount and it tells you exactly where everything is located. It tells you where slash dev slash pts is, slash dev slash shm, slash proc, slash sys, slash run, uh, slash var for me, slash temp for me, because these are all separate partitions for me, uh, slash opt, I have that on a separate partition, and then slash home, uh, sdd4 and of course slash boot slash efi as well so i could do find mount slash home for instance and it would tell me well your target is slash home the source of that is dev sdd4 file system types ext4 and here are the options that you have that mounted so it's it's pretty useful if you just if you know what you're looking for rather than just oh i should get a picture of my of this system you can get that with by by, by specifying the file system next in the list is git opt Git opt is a huge command. I want to save it for time, for, for an episode where I have time to cover it all, because it really is something very, very good to know about and uh, fun to use, but I don't want to rush it. So I'll save that for the, the next episode, probably, episode 13, 12. So next in the line, then, is host name. Host name is kind of a funny one, because it doesn't exactly do what you think it does, and then it does after a fashion, but it, it is very confusing. So here's what, what host name for most of us does, right? You, you type it in, hostname, and you get back a hostname. Let's say it's orange. So, great, that's the name of this computer. And we can confirm that with slash Etsy, slash, if we cat slash Etsy slash host, you see 127.0.0.1, localhost, and then the next line, 127.0.0.1, is for, uh, is mapped to orange.example.local, and then space orange. So that's, that's the name of the host, right? So then if we do host name, let's see if we do a dash dash help. No, nothing there. How about just dash h? Oh, I'm not even, not typing the command correctly. There we go. So there's a dash, dash s, a dash a short for short host name, alias, IP address, long, fully, quali fully qualified domain name, dash dash domain, a couple of different options. And eventually you might find out that you can do like host name blue. Oh, you have to be root to do that. So let's become root for a moment here. And then hostname blue, and then if I type in hostname again to query my own hostname, I get back blue. But once again, if we cat slash etsy slash hosts, we see that 127.0.0.1 is still mapped to orange.example.local orange. No blue in the etsy slash hosts file. So did it really change the hostname, or is it just telling us that it has changed the hostname? That's a good question. And it turns out that there are a couple of different answers to that. There are lots of different ways to go about this process. And part of that is because uh, the host name that you set may or may not be something that propagates across a network anyway. It really kind of depends on how everything is set up. So, yeah, there are some things that you may have to do in order to, to get a host name chain. One way to do that is to use host name to set it to your desired to your desired. Uh, string, and then go into, as root, of course, into slash etsy slash hosts, and change it there manually yourself. But what's actually happening here is that you've now set a text file to, to update its hostname, but that's not actually going to happen. If you look at the man page for hostname, that's not going to actually happen until you reboot, because that 
that file gets propagated by, or, or enforced rather, by uh, slash etsy slash rc dot d slash rc dot inet one or whatever. So it, it won't, it, it's not actually using your slash etsy slash hosts. You've just updated it for the next time around. And then host name is updating it right now, currently, dynamically for your session. Whether or not that is enough kind of depends on your setup. You may also have to do, or you might also want to do, something like a syscontrol command. Like, uh, for instance, and this is kind of off topic because we're not, this goes beyond, you know, the hostname command, obviously, because it's not the hostname command, it's syscontrol. But uh, syscontrol configures kernel parameters during runtime. So if you need to tell your kernel that, hey, your hostname is now different, then you could do as root, again, syscontrol, like, kernel.hostname equals, and then whatever string you want it to be, so say dot example dot local, and that would update it in the kernel even while you're running, so you're not, you're, you're kind of enforcing it without it. Now, there is yet another way, but I cannot demonstrate it really on Slackware because I'm not running systemd, but there is a utility for systemd called hostnamectl, hostnamecuddle, hostnamecontrol, however you like to say that, and and that apparently will do kind of the same job as sort of the the manual update plus the syscontrol. There are certainly other options along with hostname that you can look at if you just do a man man hostname. You can kind of get a feel for some of the other things that you can set. You just need to know that that. These are for your session only, and in order to actually enforce these, you need to do something else. You need to you need to change some other file or or use syscontrol to to tell the the kernel what your intentions are. Next up is kill, and I feel like that's substantial enough to to talk about in depth. So I'm going to skip it again, and or I'm going to skip that as well, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna talk instead about Lisp block because we've already talked about this and it's great and you should be using it if you're not it's just a fantastic little tool it is uh, lsblk is the command i believe you can just be a normal user yeah you can be a normal user to use it and it enumerates all of the block devices so like the storage device uh the, the storage devices uh attached to your system at any given time so you can do an lsblk and you'll get a nice little readout of all the drives, SDA, SDB, SDC, all the partitions in each, the size of the, the total size of the hard drive and the size of the partitions, whether it is a disk or a part, and a mount point. So if the thing is mounted right now, it tells you where it's mounted to. A very, very useful tool. It, it, it works as a user. You don't have to parse a bunch of weird error messages from dmessage. You don't have to invoke an overcomplex command like fdisk or anything like that. It's just lsblk, and you get a nice, easy-to-read list of the block devices attached to your system. So if you're ever in the if you're ever in this scenario where you need to know what what thumb drive you've just plugged in, turn to lsblk. It's a it's a great tool for that. I'm a Big, big fan. None of its options are, are are so major that it sort of makes it into a different application. It's not one of those types of commands. Its options are very much about maybe excluding certain devices, or not telling you certain bits of information that you don't care about, or um, formatting the output differently with ASCII or into JSON or something like that. It's nothing, nothing um, I would say, makes it completely different. One, one nice tool, I guess, would be ls uh, lsblk dash dash sort, and then you can name the column that you want it to to 
uh, sort it by, so that that might be useful, I guess. So if you do, just, uh, for instance, a lsblk dash dash sort mount point, then it sorts it by the mount point column. Or if you do it by type, you can uh, organize it by you know you can see all the disks at the top and then the partitions at the bottom, that sort of thing. So maybe maybe that would be interesting. I don't know. But otherwise, it's yeah, it's it's basically it is what it is. It's 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 lsblk. Let's talk about more. More is what we call generically a pager, and a pager is a program that you can use in a terminal emulator. So a terminal emulator like KDE Console or GNOME Terminal or XFCE Terminal or LX Terminal or URXVT or Terminator, whatever application you launch to get that text window into which you type command. That's the terminal emulator. And what it is meant to emulate is one of those big CRT terminals that used to be the way people would use computers. And that is to say that there wasn't a computer in the terminal. The terminal was a connection to a larger system. That was That's what a terminal technically is. So when we use a terminal emulator, we are pretending like we're sitting in front of a big CRT screen hooked up to some big sort of uh not mainframe but a but but some kind of big computer running unix and it just so happens that the computer running unix is our pc right next to us or you know in our lap and the terminal is connected with a virtual cable just to itself you know to to the linux os that you're running not 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 really exciting but that's what it's that's what it's emulating so terminal emulators have this luxury of space being virtual like physical space being virtual and so you have very frequently you have a scroll bar on your terminal and you can scroll up and down and see a, a pretty good history of of what you have done what you have typed in and what you have seen as output and all that stuff now that's a convention of of emulating a terminal. That is a luxury that we have because we're not, we don't have a bunch of, we don't have a monitor in front of us, a CRT monitor that, that is, that is accepting all of our commands and outputting data in front of us. If we had that, there, then we wouldn't have a scroll bar. There's no such thing as a scroll bar in real life, right? I mean, maybe a crank or something. It just doesn't exist. Like, it doesn't, you can't, you can't make there be more of that monitor sitting in front of you. With a terminal emulator, you can with this fancy thing that is the scroll bar. What I'm trying to get to is that that's not more, and that is not less. More and less, the, these pager applications, are the things that kind of live inside, of, or that, that affect the terminal itself. If you get rid of the scroll bar, and if you, have, if you have a terminal available to you without a scroll bar, then you should launch it. And it's funny, because I'm trying to launch one right now, and it's saying I can't open the display. And do you know why it's telling me that? That's because, if I look at my host name, I changed it to blue recently. My host name isn't really blue, so I need to change it back to orange, or whatever it actually is, or was. I'll look in Etsy host. Dark Star. So, um, I'll change it back to Dark Star. Now I'll type in Xterm, and now I have an Xterm window. So that's kind of a, a great display of exactly what kind of problems you can get into if you go messing around with the host name without actually putting it through, you know, the rest of the system. So anyway... Um, if you launch Xterm or URXVT or whatever, and I know Xterm's a good one because it's super basic, then, then you'll notice that, uh, like, unless you've changed it, unless you've done a setting yourself, um, there, there is no, there's no scroll bar. I, th I, th I want to say that on Xterm there's a, there is a property to provide a scroll bar, but anyway, I'm getting, I'm getting distracted by scroll bars now. So what we'll do instead is do a man in Xterm, oh, man more, let's do that, and, uh, it launches 
a screen full of text at you. There's no scroll bar. What do you do? Well, you can use the down arrow or the up arrow because you're in a pager, and the pager is called less, probably. Not, not all systems. If you're on BSD, for instance, you're probably in more, but less is a lot of times, I think, the default on modern Linux systems. That's kind of where everyone has gone. And that's because, I guess, because it's vaguely intuitive to a lot of people. Um, I don't know if it is or not, but, I mean, certainly if you press the down arrow, it goes down, and if you go press the up up arrow, it goes up. So I guess in that sense, yeah, it's, it, surely it must be intuitive. Figure that out. I think the hard part is that when you get to the bottom of the document, there's nothing telling you what to do next. You're, you're just caught forever in this in this thing. You could hit escape, doesn't do anything. Control C, doesn't do anything. Q, oh, that's it. So, there you go. But anyway, that's less, right? So, that's probably your default. You can check to see if you've got some fancy override of that by doing an echo space dollar sign pager. I do not. Or you can type, type in E and V and look through that list. Oh, but wait, we're in X term. I can't see the whole list. So E and V and then pipe that through maybe more or less. And, and then you can see it and see if you've got something called pager, pager all capitals. And I don't. Then that's fine. But in other words, you can set pager so that your system defaults to something other than less. You can also do it on the on, on the dynamically on the fly as you as you go so if i type in pager all capitals equals more and then do man more all all in the same line pager equals more space man space more then it launches the man page for more and pipes it through more so you can you can kind of overwrite it yourself if you want why would you do it that way and not just say man more pipe more uh you could do that too but i just wanted to demonstrate that you can set environment variables before command. So here's more, and uh, it's the man page for more. And so if you press the down or the up arrows, it doesn't do anything. No response whatsoever. If you hit H on your keyboard, you'll get a little a little summary of all the different things that you can do. And it looks like you can go to the next K number of lines, whatever K is, uh, by pressing, for instance, space, or Z, or return, or... It looks like D, maybe? Delta can do D or Control D and S and F. Lots of lots of uh, keys to, to scroll, it looks like. So we'll see how that goes. So we'll hit uh, Control, or we'll, we'll hit Space to get out of our little mini man page there for more, or our little instructional. And then we'll hit, uh, let's do Return. Yeah, and it looks like that went line by line. If I hit S, it looks like that went a full screen full. Um... D looks like that went through a, a whole screen full as well. It looks like, or maybe maybe that was more like a half screen. I don't know. But anyway, yeah, there are ways you can scroll. But B doesn't work. Strangely, if we hit B, it said Control B. No, it, it said that um, we should be able to scroll up if we hit B. Well, it turns out that if you read the man page, it tells you that B Control B doesn't work on pipes. It works on files. So if you do like more uh, example dot really long dot txt then it'll show you a file, and you'll find that you can scroll up in the file and scroll down in the file, but it has to be a file. It cannot be something piped through more. And man pages get piped through whatever pager. So one, one unique thing about more, or at least I think it's unique, is that when you get to the bottom of a, of a buffer containing more content, you are no longer in more. So for instance, if I just hit return, if I keep hitting return here through this man page that I'm on, keep hitting return, past the availability, past everything, suddenly I'm, I'm out of, I'm, I'm back at a prompt. It just, it, it very unceremoniously dumps you back into your prompt out of more. There's no, 
There is no hitting... You don't need to hit Q to get out of more if you've scrolled to the bottom of the file. It simply recognizes there's no more in this pipe or in this file, so here's your prompt back. So maybe you like that. Maybe that's an advantage to you. Maybe that's quicker, a little bit more graceful for you. I don't know. I'm, I guess I am sort of a less guy. I don't, I, I, I don't really think about pagers all that much, and I, I generally take whatever they give me. I've tried more, I've tried less, and I've tried most. And I don't know if I really have a preference, to be honest. I'm just, I, none of them seem like killer apps to me. And, and it might seem silly to, to even consider that a pager might have really cool features that make you just love being in them. But, I mean, you wouldn't see, you wouldn't think that about a diff program, but there are some great differs out there, so. I don't know. I think someone. I think this is a space ripe for for development. Someone should come up with a really cool pager application that makes people just really want to just look at man pages. I mean, that would solve a lot of problems. It would it would inspire people to open up man pages and read and and learn stuff. It'd be pretty cool. But um, I'm not that person. Maybe you are. And if you're if you are someone who loves more, actually, seriously, if you're someone who prefers more than less, I would be curious to hear what feature of one or the other you you prefer or you, you know you don't like you don't like this feature in less or you do like this feature in more or whatever i'd be i'd be interested i'd be curious to hear that because i i really they're they're kind of all the same to me so anyway that's that's more and that's as far as we can go this episode you hear the music i hear the music we know it this has to come to an end Next episode, I'm excited for you to hear all about GitOpt. We'll spend probably at least half the episode, if not the whole episode, on GitOpt, because it is a big one and an important one. Maybe we'll do GitOpt and then kill. I don't know. We'll find out. Tune in next time. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Thank you for listening to the GNU World Order Ogcast. This has been Klaatu. You can reach me on IRC. I'm on the Freenode network usually in channels such as Augcast Planet, Slacker Media, Slackware, a couple of others. My nick on IRC is not Klaatu. You can also reach me lately on Mastodon. My username there is at Klaatu at Mastodon.xyz. Of course, you can email me at Klaatu at member.fsf.org. That's Klaatu at member.fsf, as in Free Software Foundation.org. And of course, you can visit my various websites, gnuworldorder.info and slackermedia.info. I will see you next time. Is delicious, do you know that?